Welcome to Reckoning. My name is Ingrid, and I'm starting this podcast to share open and honest discussions about our experiences with death. I'm hoping that as a culture, we can grow to talk about it without it being feared as a heavy, scary, and overwhelming topic. Let's talk about it more, get a little more comfortable with it, wrestle and wonder and ask questions. Let's reckon with it. We all have to deal with this aspect of life. We will lose everyone we know, and we ourselves will die. So how can we face this reality with eyes more open, with some grace, humility, understanding, and even appreciation? How can we embrace this aspect of being a human and use it as a way to grow, learn, and expand? The goal of this podcast is to turn toward these shared experiences, using our stories and collective wisdom to gain some courage and strength and skill to face it. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to and have these conversations with me. Thanks for being willing to reckon with the topic of death and dying. to another episode of Reckoning. Today's interview is with Joe Casserly. He is sharing his story about losing his partner to the AIDS crisis in the early 80s in San Francisco. Our conversation touches not only on personal loss, but on group cultural trauma and what it looked like to be a part of what was the heart of the gay rights movement as it was unfolding in San Francisco at that time. We're also treated to a dramatic reading of a poem that he wrote about an experience he had while caretaking for Jean. So stay tuned for another lively conversation about death and dying. Okay, uh, my name is Joe Casserly, and I live in San Francisco, California. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to have a conversation with me. And so I would like to hear your experience Um, My understanding is that you lost a partner a few decades ago. That is correct. His name was Gene Sturdivant. He was one of the early uh, people who died from uh, in the AIDS crisis Mm. plague. Mm. And was that also in San Francisco? Uh, yes, I've been in San Francisco. Uh, Actually, we met in New Orleans and um, he had moved back out here to San Francisco, where he's from, and uh, I had was just trying to f- find a place to be, and San Francisco stumbled into my path, and uh, we rekindled our friendship and then became boyfriends. Sounds like it was a really lively time, uh, San Francisco in the, the 70s. It was, uh, yes, it was. This was about a year after the the White Night riots and things. Mm-hmm. So it, this city was still pretty politically charged, especially the gay community. Mm-hmm. I was in, it was before ACT UP, 
and but there was still a lot of stuff uh sort of demonstration and protest and rebellion it was it was a good time and then what for me always makes me laugh is it was before uh the internet so uh it was always interesting that like something political would happen somebody gets voted something happens politically and within a half an hour there were hundreds of people down in the castro because the only way we could sort of communicate with each other was to really meet face to face you could call so many people so there was always these spontaneous sort of gatherings and there'd be suddenly thousands of people and the streets would be blocked and it's just a, a an avid the social interaction was very different than what we have now yeah that's interesting i mean i feel like we feel like we're so connected now with phones and social media but it sounds like you know in the absence of that there was a more physical presence yeah my my joke always is is that during high school we didn't even have answering machines but we still wound up at the same parties yeah 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 i love that and so did you and Jean participate in, it sounds like, in a lot of the protests and the, the political activity of that time? Yeah. Um, the, I, the one that comes to mind is interesting. I mean, it's not – this is how it would manifest. So we would find out about sort of this warehouse that's having a big dance party all night. So we would wind up going into this big hall that's uh, an old abandoned warehouse and there's a DJ and some lights and a bar and uh, there'd be hundreds of, of gay men. I mean, at that time, the lesbian and gay uh, men's communities weren't integrated. So it'd be hundreds of gay guys all dancing out. And this one particular night, uh, the police came and told us that we didn't have the right permit and they were all supposed to go home. So you now have about, I think it was at least 500 guys in the audience and they have the, the, the police guy, captain or whatever, up on stage telling us we have to go home. And slowly the, uh, the audience just started to clap together in this pulse and it just became louder and louder and louder. And I know that they had police cards and guys out there and, and everything, but the pulse just got louder and louder and the men were stamping their feet and clapping their hands, Not and just this pulse that wouldn't go away. And then eventually the captain left the stage and the, all the police left and the, the, the dance floor screamed at joy and celebrated. And then the, they started the music up and we danced till dawn. What, what a victory. Yes, it was. It was a, a very personal victory that could have easily erupted into a uh, an altercation. Sure. And so how how do you think that, you know, the context of those times flavored your relationship with Jean? Was that something, was this like, were there conversations you were having frequently about gay rights and... He was part of the everyday conversation. It's sort of like it was just, you know, what happens to gay culture had always been on the outskirts. And this is pre-AIDS. So in the, the mid-80s, um, it started to become cool to be gay and to know gay people. It, that all got pushed back once AIDS came around. But uh, in the, the mid-80s, there was a, a real positive spin. It was post-60s sexual revolution, and there was like a divergent community starting to come out. And so uh, it was just a, a good 
there's lots of stuff going on, uh, lots of new stuff, unexplored areas in public view, which is interesting. Yeah, which I, I would say to some degree, my perception is that's, you know, especially in places like here, I'm here I'm in Portland, San Francisco, that's maybe coming back around, you know, there's a lot of vibrant gay and queer culture and a lot of celebration of those identities. Um, and I, I think a lot of that is due to the groundwork that you all, your generation laid, you know, the, all the, the protests and the, the hard work. Yeah, um, I mean, that was interesting because um, my current boyfriend, Todd, and I wound up being extras in the Harvey Milk film with Sean Penn. Oh, awesome. And it was interesting going through that because I was a lot of times the historian for all of the guys, not the young men who didn't really have a context or an understanding of why, what we're doing and why we're doing it. Right, right. And as a cool side note, um, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but one of the streets in downtown Portland has now been renamed Harvey Milk Street. Oh, really? No, I didn't know that. Yeah. So anyway, just once again, it's neat that, yeah, you, you know, that you're able to, you know, transfer that information in the story so that, you know, current generations and future ones can benefit from knowing, you know, who these people were and, and you know, what they did. Yeah, I just think that's really wonderful. So. Right. And that's sort of like I, I as you know, I have a, a gay nephew. So mm-hmm. it was uh, when he uh, let it be known that he was gay is sort of like he let's just say rarely does the family celebrate a gay person coming out. Mm -hmm. So it was good for him. Todd and I were able to celebrate. Yay. You know, we're glad that you're gay and we're glad we're supportive and we'll do whatever we can to, you know, make this part of your life easier. And uh, I know that most uh, gay people don't get that. So, so now shifting the conversation a bit, you know, you had mentioned that there was this shift uh, pre and post uh, the AIDS epidemic in gay culture. So um, what what was some of that shift like as the as the epidemic spread and, you know, as your as your partner contracted the disease? Yeah, just talk through that a little bit. Yeah. Um, for well, when I when Jean first got diagnosed with AIDS, there wasn't an HIV test. It's just people dying. And at a certain point, I was going to like three funerals slash memorials a week. Mm-hmm. It was it was crazy. Uh, I mean, it's similar to like a, living in a time of a war where the young men were disappearing and dying regularly. Mm-hmm. So there was a real emptiness in that respect. I remember once telling a friend, I said, think of all of the girls you knew in high school or college. Now, imagine if all of them were gone now and new ones came in you still have this gap of that's missing and that's sort of what it's like when i uh right now even living in san francisco i i don't meet a whole lot of guys that are from eight years younger to eight years older than i am Mm -hmm. there's sort of this you know 15 16 maybe a little broader i'm just generalizing but uh, this gap of of men, especially that are from San Francisco. Yeah. And, you know, that sounds traumatic. Like that's an, you know, there's an, an entire community is being lost. So it's not just one loss. It's many, many losses. 
happening at the same time. Right. And a bigger cultural loss is that because uh, essentially gay culture has been a word of mouth history uh, mm -hmm. with the, the, the mass death of so many people, the, the history of the pre-AIDS uh, life for gay men is fairly lost. Mm, wow. Yeah. So that's an even wider impact. You know, all of those, the, the culture and the stories and the, the learn, you know, the lessons learned and, and the wisdoms. Right. They don't get passed on. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds, um, <clears throat> I mean, I, can, I just can't imagine, I can't imagine, you know, all of my, the closest people around me, you know, beginning to contract a disease and then many of them die. That would have been quite, you know, even gruesome to watch people physically. Yeah. And it happened uh, in months, sometimes only like three months, somebody would have a cough and three months later they were dead. It really was 100% for a while. Anybody who got diagnosed was dead. Mm -hmm. My boyfriend, Gene, he uh, was given nine months to live from an original, original diagnosis. He lasted for about three years, and then he died. Was he undergoing any kind of treatment in those years? Yeah, well, it was experimental. He was uh, one of the first people testing on... Uh, AC, AZT, I think it was called. Mm -hmm. um, they also tried uh, for his uh, his pneumocystis pneumonia that he would get chronically. Uh, they were trying aerosolized uh, medication mm -hmm. uh, that they found through his experience, they sort of pulled away from it because of the chronic. Uh, what happened is the scar tissue blocked areas where uh, the medication couldn't get in through inhaling it, so it did. Uh, it it was not a good solution, but it was interesting being part of those trials. Sure, you know I've heard other people talk about from their experiences with with illnesses. You know, to some degree, it feels like at least you're helping solve part of the bigger problem by contributing to the trials. But at the same time, it brings its own struggle of you know, there is no solution yet. And right. you don't know, like you're saying, like the one treatment, the aerosol treatment, they stopped doing it because it wasn't working. And so it's like, you're the one that it's not working on. And that's. <laughs> uh -huh. It's yeah. a war. It's not, it's a nominal comfort to yeah. feel that you're contributing, but at the same time, you're, you're there. What they're learning is this doesn't work. Right, 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 right. So those three years with Gene as, as he was dying, what what were those years like? Was it up and down? Was it a fairly like um, steady decline? What okay? My analogy on that is okay. So you you tie a rope to your ankle, and you tie it to the back of a Volkswagen little bug, and then you drive hurriedly through the back streets of San Francisco and stopping at all the stop signs and taking all the shortcuts you can. So just as you sort of stand up to get, uh, to brush yourself off, the Volkswagen's off again, dragging you again. Mm -hmm. There was, it was, uh, there were windows of health during that. I remember once we were at a Sisters of Mercy concert, uh, dancing in the front. Must have been, he must have been two years into the illness at this point. And we bump into a friend and the friend turns around and he goes, oh my God, 
I can't believe that I'm seeing you here at all. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, I mean, he would have windows of health and we tried to exploit those because uh, the, the, the episodes of illness were really debilitating. I would track his weight uh, and have a little chart on the kitchen uh, wall there. And uh, would, I found over the years that when I'd see his weight dropping, I could predict that he was going to have an episode of more severe illness within another week or two. And were you his primary caretaker? Yeah. I actually, at one point when he had a collapsed lung, um, I lived in the hospital on a cot in the room for five weeks. I slept every night there. Oh, my gosh. So, so your, your life is also suspended and on hold through that. Right. Well, well, that was one of the things that sort of like because he was dying, we tried to do everything we wanted to do as bucket list sort of thing. Mm. And so by the time he died, I'd sort of done everything I wanted. So it was this sort of like I had to sort of try and do I have a bucket list? Oh, as I wrote a little thing, it said, uh, I said, here's the frost. Like, as you know, there's the whole thing. You can have your cake and eat it, too. So I was saying, here's the frosting. But where is the cake? What is this bare, sweetened blob of endless defeat? You know, it was just uh, it was just uh, trying to reconnect. I don't know if I've ever really fully reconnected. I feel like all of this has been icing on the cake the past, what, 30, 40 years. Yeah. Right. Especially as you I mean, you survived and you didn't you didn't contract AIDS. And so that must feel, you know, very surreal to have watched the people around you, you know, that random, seemingly, you know. Right. You well, the survivor's guilt thing. So what I remember, so Gene had been sick a, a couple of years at this point. And me and my best friends, I said, well, let's get on an asymptomatic study because we all just assumed that we were positive. That's all you could do. Uh, but so we all, but in order to get on an asymptomatic study, because there were lots of them, uh, you had to go get one of the new uh, HIV tests. So uh, we all go down and get our HIV test and we ha it takes two weeks to get your results back then. So we come back in and all of my friends who we went down together, all of them were positive and I was the only negative. And, and it's not uh, because of any difference in behavior. It has to do, there was a, I don't know if we want to get into this, but there was a study, um, uh, I watched a, a PBS special. It was a study on why certain guys didn't get it. And what they found out to research is that uh, descendants of people, of people who survived the Black Plague in Europe, the, those people didn't have a receptor for the Black Plague. So what, and so that's why they survived. Those, so the people now, so that's why uh, a, lot, the, a lot of the guys who have got, lacked that receptor from both sides of their family just didn't have a, were not biologically able to get AIDS. And then there were the people who got like, they got the receptor from their one parent and the not receptor from the other. And those people were the ones that were falling into what was called ARC, which was AIDS related condition. And so, so there was a lot of genetics going on there. I've never sort of gambled with I'm invulnerable, 
but I believe that that's why I never contracted it, and I still test negative. Interesting, interesting. Wow. I mean, and that I'm assuming some of the science of all that, you know, came out years later. You know, the, how the answers come far after the tragedy and the trauma. I, does, does that, like, bring up any... Does it open old wounds? Does it bring up... Uh, no, actually, that's interesting. I feel actually fairly healed from that. I feel what I, I feel that it changed me. It's like a tree. You uh, you break off a branch or even the top, and other things grow, and the new stuff is great, and it never bemoans the that missing limb. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it was hard getting to that space. You know, I mean, I grieved for a long time. I actually at one point did a, a grieving seminar. It was like a 10 weeks once a week to go to help people go through the grieving process. Because if you're not with a lot of the organized traditional uh, religions and cultures, there's sort of a, a, a process that is you're supposed to do this, supposed to do that. I don't like organized religion and that's a whole nother <laughs> thing anyway um <laughs> therefore i don't fall in so i had no patterns to fall onto mm. so figuring out how to put uh, these emotions in a, in a good place uh anger with god for lack of a better term is another piece you know mm-hmm. especially like if i walk down the street 10 years later and i see a homeless person who's been essentially limping around for the past 10 years and they're still there why was this healthy young man 10 years ago taken from me when this person who is not really contributing is is still alive and kicking mm-hmm. you know the injustice of it all mm-hmm. you know and uh, you have to learn to accept that it's the fairness is not a part of of life. I mean, we try to develop that in our culture to bring a little sense of safety. But uh, when it comes to the crapshoot, it's really, uh, it's really random. And this grieving seminar you're talking about, how did you find that? I don't know how I found it, to tell you the truth. I think because there was probably just a lot of people in our culture at that point here in San Francisco that were in the same boat I was. In fact, I actually wound up leading a I led two groups as a support counselor for recently converted HIV kids. Mm-hmm. And I, that I did for a couple of years. What, what are some of the things that were talked about or tools that were shared or given um, yeah. in terms of grief? Well, uh, recognizing that your grief, what is loss, um, recognizing mm-hmm. the unfairness. It's interesting. Um, in any relationship, one person's going to die before the other. Mm-hmm. It's like unless you happen to be on the same plane that crashes in the Midwest, mm-hmm. you're, you're one person's going to die first. And uh, it's just important to have a high quality relationship during whatever time you have with somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things, too, is sort of like Gene got on a bus without me and I can see the bus pulling out of the Greyhound, Greyhound's terminal and I'm, he's waving to me out of, from the window. And it's sort of like, why didn't I get a ticket? So there was a sense of abandonment. So that's a big yeah. the weird things are you, you feel abandoned, you feel angry at the person for leaving you. Um, things like that. Uh, there's a, a resentment. It's hard to. Uh, find appreciation for 
things that uh, for anything, it all seems like, what's the point, you know, and uh, which then ties back into depression in general. So, yeah, it sounds like a lot of the that process of healing is, you know, being able to name those experiences and those feelings and you know, and, and maybe find community in other people that are experiencing them or can and can recognize them. Yeah, it's, okay, well, what it just came to mind, I was at a party shortly after Gene's death, and I was, uh, somebody asked me how I was doing it, and, mm-hmm. and the guy was just saying, um, well, what would your, what would Gene want you to do? Wouldn't He would want you to be happy. Mm-hmm. And I just turned to him and said, I don't care what Gene wants, he's dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so um, luckily I had uh, I had some I had invented a few systems to because I knew socialization was the key to mental health. So I created a system to keep myself socialized. So I wouldn't withdraw. And that was really helpful. As far as old wounds, it's interesting. I hadn't really thought about old wounds in a long time. Mm-hmm. and healing it's interesting what happens is it's it's not so much that things mend it's that you sort of learn how to move on without them mm-hmm. you know and it's sort of like you develop new things mm-hmm. and uh recognizing that every part of your life has value mm-hmm. and uh it's it's it, it i like what where my life has brought me so I don't begrudge that. Um, I'm actually, to be blunt, I'm glad that I had some devastation as a young person because I think it's made me a better person. You know, I think that I'm more thoughtful and considerate and uh, appreciative of things overall. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That is a, like a very common sentiment I hear from these conversations and something, yeah, I personally feel as well this weird catch 22 of, of course, we don't want to experience loss or see other people experience pain or suffering. And yet it's through those experiences that we grow and become better people. And, um, and it, you know, it would be foolish to, to ask for a life in which there is no loss or pain or, or suffering. <laughs> so, so were you having any conversations like this with Gene as he was dying or, or your friend group um, and your peers? Uh, Gene and I were pretty upfront about talking about stuff, um, you know, understanding, you know, that he was sort of how I mean, we're very conscious about trying to make the most of life that he could squeeze out. One of the things that like getting back to my system for managing my socialization. So I would take make a list of my friends and I would make put next to them the date that I last saw them. Then I would organize it so the person I hadn't seen the most was at the top and the recent people were at the bottom. And then I'd look at the top three people and I'd say, I'm going to call and make it a a date to get together with them sometime in the next couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And then I would and then as I would see people, I'd move them to the bottom of the list. Now, some people that I would see all the time anyway would never wind up at the top. But what this allowed me and what the mental health attribute is by the time I was seeing friends again. I'd moved uh, in. I'd moved in my grieving. Actually, it was even before Gene died. But I, I'd moved forward in um, my process. So therefore, they're not hearing a broken record of Joe stuck on the same thing because mm-hmm. they hadn't seen me in a while. So at least my problems were new, or my perspective was, was new, and it, there was, and it helped me not feel like I was overburdening them. 
I mean, that's, that's an incredible act of self-care and an awareness to recognize that, you know, you knew you needed the support of loved ones around you and, and you took an active role in, in pursuing that support. I think that one thing that ends up being really hard for people through any kind of challenging transition or, or loss is that, you know, people are pretty quick to say like, let me know if you need anything, but it's really hard to say specifically what it is that you need or to even ask for it. Like, I need someone to make me dinner tonight. Um, right. Well, gee, yeah, just so you know, Jean and I, uh, early, sometime in the middle, I guess, you know, in the year two someplace, we uh, we accepted that we couldn't do this on our own. Mm-hmm. And we started reaching out to our friends to help us with laundry, to help us with this, mm-hmm. to help mm-hmm. with that. What can it, people are saying, well, what can we do? Well, you know, so we started uh, trying to leverage that social support from our immediate friends as well as community services. A lot of stuff developed in San Francisco at that time where they deliver dinners to people who are, who are stuck at home. And oh, since we're here, uh, see before the AIDS thing, you would never even see a uh, any girls on Castro Street really. And not the lesbian community was completely separated, but it was through the AIDS crisis that the lesbian community really stepped in and started doing a lot of the caregiving for the gay man. And it really bridged those communities uh, more than they'd ever been before. So, okay, so uh, Jean was in the hospital again. I know uh, uh, this weird surgery that didn't make things better. And we knew that he was on his his last days and things like that. And uh, I was uh, I was trading off with his mom. His mom was uh, a Navy nurse. Mm -hmm. And so at a certain point, she came into town and she started to relieve me because I was sort of doing 24 uh, seven healthcare for Jean, practical support, changing the sheets, changing the clothes, bathing, I'm doing everything. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and she came in and uh, sort of helped and gave me some time to, to recharge, separate, eat, just to get a break. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he wound up going back into the hospital and uh, we were trading off there and I had gone out to lunch with some friends. And while I was, a lot of times uh, people will hang on if there's other people in the room. So one of the things that, <laughs> things is you gotta leave people who are dying alone a little bit because if they want it, it's easier for them to let go when they're not emotionally connected to somebody they can hear or see in the room. So, um, so uh, Jean's mom, her name's Betty. So Betty had stepped out of the room to get to request more pain medication because he was really suffering. And while she was out, when she came back, he had died. And so then they called me. I had left where the my friend's phone number because we didn't have cell phones. Uh, I was over at my friend Mark and Mary Kay's house. 
and uh, the phone call came in and I headed over to the hospital. Uh, they gave me some time alone with Gene and then we started the wrap up stuff. It was a, uh, it was a tragic, difficult time. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's really interesting what you say about, I mean, the fact that you and his mother were out of the room when he passed. Um, yeah. I wonder, I, you know, obviously everybody goes in different ways and they, they have different, you know, experiences, but to some degree that makes sense. Like it would be almost an act of whether it's conscious or not on Gene's part, you know, to be like, I'm just going to go when it's, when there's the least amount of turbulence or people around, or I can just kind of slip out. We emotionally bond, especially when you're incapacitated, you bond with the people that you can hear and or see. So now my best friend died about 10 years later, I guess, from AIDS. Mm -hmm. And he, as he was getting sick, as it was coming undone, he asked me to protect him from his family, (laughs) whatever that meant. But anyway, so he's now in the hospice. He has like, he has eight brothers and sisters and half of, at least half of them were in town in weeks now. And I, and now he's been in a sort of unconscious for a number of days. And I walk in the room one day and I say, when was the last time Ken had any time to himself? Mm-hmm. Nobody else here. And everybody says, oh, there's always somebody here. I said, no, okay. So we'll, let me look at the clock. Okay, 15 minutes. We're going to all go out into the waiting area, lobby area, and sit down in those chairs for 15 mm-hmm. minutes and then give Ken a chance to pass away if he wants. And if we come back and he's still here, it's all great. Mm-hmm. So I got all, I ushered them all out. We're sitting out in the, the common area of the hospice, sitting and chatting. We go back in after the 15 minutes and Ken has passed. Wow. I, I think there's something really powerful in what you're saying, you know, and giving people space, you know, they're on their own journey. And th- there's like a common symptom that happens with, with caretakers, which is then we like carry all this burden on our shoulders of having to do and fix everything and, and be able to solve all the problems when so oftentimes in reality, the person's, yeah, they're on their own path and they need, you know, they need support, obviously, but the space and, and room to, yeah, make, make their own transitions and have their own time themselves. I think that's really powerful. You know, I don't, I don't mean this question disrespectfully, but was there any relief at that moment? Oh yeah, of course. There's a relief in many different ways. Your, my own suffering, the suffering of the person, the suffering of all of the friends and family. Uh, There's a difference between persevering through uh, a hard time, knowing that there's an island of health ahead. But when you know that the person is not going to recover and is going to, this is sort of the end, um, that prolonging this, and a lot of people feel guilty for that, but uh, yeah. it, it's 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 natural. The, the sense of relief the, of allowing things to move on. So, in a certain sense, I feel lucky, even though it was uh, painful. It's an understatement, um, but a Gene actually 
I mean, at the end, his ultimate end suffering was not too extensive, even though it was horrible. You know, this experience you had of, of walking with Jean and your community at large and many of your peers through this the tragic epidemic, you know, has, has shaped your worldview and your perspective and, and how you move forward. Do you have any, any words to describe that or takeaways? You know, when you're looking at your whole life, is there a, a, a simple word to take it all in that covers, encompasses it? Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think I don't know is a great answer to that broad, broad question. And yeah, I guess I was just looking to see if there was something striking example of something that you carried with you but i think it makes a lot of sense that through those experiences there would be yeah these broad strokes of of perspective and it you know changed your life in in big and and ways that you can't necessarily see or calculate or point to so so i I, that's a fine answer i just just was kind of curious Uh uh-huh yeah it's interesting I'm, i'm still turning my wheels on it um, I think, let's say that t- 20 years ago, because Gene died about 30 years ago. He died in 88. And so now it's mm-hmm. it's 19. So um, right. I would say 20 years ago, I probably would have had a, an easier answer to that question. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I've had since Gene died, I've had a 12 year relationship and now I'm in a 16 year relationship. Mm-hmm. So a lot of of reinventing myself has gone on, even though that early part of my young adulthood is foundational. Mm-hmm. I feel that I've had a sort of success in love and in relationship building and management uh, that um, it, that hasn't diminished the past, but it also, I, I, I don't really have any, there's no, I'm not one who thinks, oh, I wish things were like they used to be. Mm-hmm. I'm not nostalgic really at all. I don't, even though I feel that it all contributes, I don't try to recreate the past. Well, that's well said. I, I really appreciate that, the way you said that. I think that was clearly a wisdom born of, yeah, your own experience. And I think that's quite wise. <laughs> <laughs> And, and for the context of listeners, uh, we met, you and I met at a birthday party a few months ago and, you know, immediately jumped into warm, lively conversation, which I always appreciate because I'm not really one for small talk. And you recited this gorgeous poem for me that you had written, my understanding is specifically for Jean, and so, or in, you know, an ode to that experience. And so... Curious if you would mind reciting that for us. I'd be happy to. So the preface on this is that uh, during Jean's illness, twice I saw the specter of death. Uh, and this is a recounting of one of those experiences. Okay. And it's called Twas Only a Dream. One evening quite late, I sat in my flat while reading or writing or something like that. I heard my true love call out a scared peep, a frightening cry of distress from his sleep. 
I opened the door of our bedroom so fast in time to free him from death's selfish grasp. Be gone, you dark ghoul. Tis not your time yet. And I ran to the side of my lover's regret. He grumbled a bit with a toss and a turn, woke not from his sleep that I could discern. I tucked him well in. The door left ajar. That collector this time has just gone too far. Next morning at breakfast, my lover did speak of dreams that he had that included this freak, a dark man in a cloak that frightened him so that he yelled to his mom to make that man go. I said it was I who came to his aid, who comforted him in his sleep where he laid. He smiled and thanked me for being right there, for coming to him in his time of despair. One secret I kept from my love all his life, the night that he dreamt of that terrible strife, the cloaked figure he saw, he had not a clue that I saw him there, that I saw him too. Wow. Yeah, that, I mean, that is a chilling scene that you have put forth in that poem. <laughs> I know. Well, you know what's weird is if I were to have to tell you ex what happened during that scene, that's exactly what happens. That's one evening quite late. I sat in my flat while reading or lighting or something like that. Yeah, that's that's pretty incredible, though, that you had that that direct contact and experience. And you said that was twice that you saw it? Yeah, I mean, what happened was I did when I went into the room in the closet area, I could perceive a tall, cloaked, dark figure. And I turned my back to him and I put my back to him and I sat on the bed between the dark figure and Jean. Mm -hmm. um, the other time is when I was sleeping in the hospital for those five weeks on the cot. One night, um, um, you know, when you look at a, like you could see the light coming in from the, the edge of the door uh, mm -hmm. from the hallway and it was dark in the bed in the, the hospital room. Right. But as I'm looking at it, I sort of feel uncomfortable. So I'm looking at the door and then the right edge light sort of seemed to disappear. And then it, it, so as it came back across the top sort of seemed to go dark. And eventually on the left hand side went dark and moved away. And about five minutes later, all of these alarms were going off and people running and such. So at the, 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 next, the next morning, uh, the nurse comes in to help start cleaning him up for the, the, the day. And she starts to talk about what on, went on last night. But what had happened was a, a guy down the hall had died. Oh. And it was really weird for me to have perceived that. And then followed by, you know, here's, I can see here. I sort of saw the specter of that walk down the hall and go get somebody. And yeah. it was just such a, an odd experience. Mm, wow. That is pretty incredible, and I, yeah, I've heard I've heard a number of stories through hospice of people that have inexplicable spiritual experiences. You know, as people are on that threshold between life and death. You know, one of the things I find fascinating about this specific chapter of the human life cycle is that it's really largely inexplicable. There's a lot we don't know. Yeah. And can't explain. And so find that really fascinating. Uh -huh. I actually like that part. I love the part that it doesn't have to make sense. It yeah. doesn't have to be explained, you yeah. know, and you get into I mean, it's a dangerous territory when you get away from 
facts versus beliefs, but there's places where beliefs are healthy and uh, and and there aren't and there's no way to find facts. It isn't uh, tangible. You can't just finding tangibility in the intangible is a road to insanity. So uh, is there anything else that you want to share or tell people or? I mean, it's really, I mean, if anything it is, is that um, it's never good to to lose somebody, but at the same time, it is part of life. As I said earlier, people, you know, somebody dies, it's uh, ahead of others. It's just the way that things are. Mm-hmm. And it's sad when you feel, the saddest part is when people's lives seem cut short, that they weren't given the time to to have a, a full life. But then that really, what the, the lesson for that is to just always try and live well and deeply and feel and uh, don't be mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it comes down to the basics, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, you know. Yeah, I love that. Awesome, Joe. Well, I, again, I really appreciate your time and I you're sharing so much of your story. And, and also I, yeah, I'm just I'm grateful for like the work that you and your generation have done for gay and queer lives. And so anyway, so thanks for that. Thanks, thanks. I, I try to contribute in my way. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Well, maybe see you around again soon. Yeah, I hope so. I'm just trying to get back up to Portland soon. I just want to say one more thing, which is that I am not an expert. I'm not here to tell people how to grieve or heal or what death is or isn't. My main goal with this project is simply to create space for us to share our stories about death and dying. And from that collective experience, enable all of us to feel less alone in facing the challenges of grief and loss. Thank you for listening, for being brave and vulnerable, and for your time. Any questions or comments, please get in touch with me. I'd love to hear from you and perhaps share your story too.